0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus back in on the financials as we will reflect on the recent stress test results, preview the upcoming Q2 reporting season, highlight portfolio considerations, and more. So joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Brad Ball, financials analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Brad, welcome back. Thank you for joining us today. And look Looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thanks, Dan. Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. Now, it does appear based on the recent statement as well as the testimony provided by Fed Chairman Jerome Powell in recent weeks that the policy path forward for the Fed will indeed remain accommodative and we can expect a low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. So, with that backdrop in mind, Brad, what are the implications there to the financial sector?
1: Yes, um, I do think that the Fed statement and the reaction in rates in the market Uh, has been a factor in the recent underperformance of the U.S. financials, which have significantly outperformed uh, so far this year, but they've given a little bit back in the last couple of weeks since the Fed announcement. You know, as you said, the Fed pledged to remain accommodative, uh, and I think the market saw the Fed Chairman Powell's comments as a signal that short-term rates will likely be kept lower for longer uh, that puts a drag on uh, banks' uh, top-line revenues. Uh, banks are generally uh, what we call asset-sensitive. That means they have more assets they reprice in the short-term than liabilities. So when rates are low, the assets are repricing lower. Therefore, they're generating a lower yield relative to their cost of funds. So the net interest margin comes under pressure. That impacts net interest income. Net interest income is about two-thirds to 70% of revenues for a typical bank. And, uh, you know, that's why low short-term rates uh, are are really a negative.
2: You know, having
1: said that, I do think while the Fed is remaining accommodative, I think that we will continue to see upward pressure on the 10-year Treasury yield. Now, that's come in a little bit uh, as well this past quarter. It's at about a 1.45% right now. Uh, But the UBS House view is that the 10-year Treasury yield will rise to around 2% by year-end. Uh, and that's a good sign for two reasons. One is it suggests that the market assumes uh, stronger economic growth and therefore uh, rising interest rates to address the higher uh, macro growth environment. Uh, and the second is that it will likely pull along with it uh, short-term rates. Uh, the Fed will eventually raise short-term rates. Again, while they're remaining accommodative for now, we do think that the Fed will look to raise uh, Fed funds uh, potentially in 2023, maybe even sooner if inflation heats up even more. So, you know, while I do think we're facing some near-term challenges with low short-term rates, I think the backdrop is likely to improve uh, as this year goes on.
0: Brad, thank you for walking us through that rate outlook and the implications there to the group. So maybe switching gears a bit, I know on an annual basis, we do like to talk about the Fed's stress test results. And I know 23 institutions participate in this program. Uh, the results were recently released. It does appear that the group fared well. So Brad, maybe it would be helpful if you can remind our audience what the process targets, what it examines, and provide some takeaway from the results, what you picked up on?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So the stress test, the so-called CCar or Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review, and DFAST or Dodd Frank Act stress test, uh, they they really started uh, after the financial crisis and after the Dodd Frank Act in 2010, and they were originally intended for uh, the Fed to do an annual assessment of the capital adequacy of the largest U.S. banks you know, basically focusing on whether banks could withstand another severe, severely adverse, uh, adverse stress scenario, similar to what we saw in the financial crisis. Um, and, you know, th- th- that kind of scenario includes things like a negative GDP growth, uh, you know, a market crash, a spike in unemployment to over 10 percent. Um, and again, it was initially meant to help reinforce the confidence uh, of the public in the banking system's ability to withstand a crisis. Uh, this year's test, like you said, just, just got results, uh, recently. Um, really is, is the, is important, I think, because it's the third stress test that we've had in the last year. Uh, we had one interim test that was in December as an intention to review the bank's positioning vis-a-vis the pandemic. And it's really the first one since we've come out the other side of the pandemic. And I'd say there's two main takeaways uh, to focus on. First, uh, as you said, all 23 banks in the test did, in fact, uh, quote, unquote, pass this year. Uh, That means that their regulatory capital exceeds the Fed's minimum requirements. And it reaffirms the strength of the industry coming out of the COVID crisis. I think you could say that the banks actually accumulated capital uh, during the pandemic. Second, uh, the banks did gain uh, new capital flexibility. Uh, the Fed changed its framework now, and it's focusing on something called the stress capital buffer, the so-called SCB, which is basically the amount above the minimum requirement uh, plus dividends that the banks will be required to hold on an ongoing basis. Now with the SCB, the banks know precisely what the Fed expects of them, and that gives them the ability to increase their buybacks or increase their dividends without having to get pre-approval from the Fed as long as their capital stays above that SCB going forward. So I think we're back on a one-year annual review. Uh, So the next time we get CCAR and EFAS will be this time next year. And as I say, we have increased flexibility as a result of that.
0: Brad, thank you for providing us with some reflections and takeaways from the results. Now, you did mention just there share buybacks as well as dividends. So I'm curious what the path forward for both looks like for these banks in light of these results.
1: Yeah. So actually, just this past Monday, we did get uh, announcements from several of the the big banks about dividend increases and a a few of them announced uh, higher buybacks as well. Um, I'd say most of the announcements that we heard were in line with, uh, street expectations. Uh, dividend increases, though, in some cases were significant. We saw a couple of banks that literally doubled their dividend. Uh, and we saw others that increased their dividends significantly, uh, you know, above 50%. Um, and I think a lot of that is because the dividends had been frozen by the Fed back at the onset of the pandemic, back in the second quarter of last year. Banks were able to pay their dividend, but they were not able to increase it for a year. So we did see some significant increases, but we also saw a couple that kept their dividends flat. And I think that, uh, you know, reflected a little bit of disappointment in terms of their ability to uh, manage their risk position in the face of the pandemic. Um, and quickly regarding repurchases, it does appear that the banks are going to, uh, to a large extent stick with their existing plans. Um, and I think that what that translates into is, uh, banks returning capital to shareholders at a, at a above 100% payout, meaning, uh, they're going to return capital above the amount of net income that they generate over the next four quarters through the combination of dividends at sort of 35 to 40 percent payout and buybacks at sort of 65, 60 to 65 percent payout. And so uh, returning over 100 percent of their net income suggests that they do have a significant amount of excess capital available both to grow their business, to, to grow uh, investments and loans, uh, and still enough left over to uh, buy back uh, and pay dividends uh, in a significant way. Uh, those, those kind of things uh, generate a, a yield in and of themselves. Uh, even if the stocks were to remain flat over the next 12 months, we estimate that the buyback plus dividend yield could be in the 9 to 10% range uh, for the banking group over the next 12 months.
0: A lot of investor attention has been paid to these stress test results, as well as the share buyback, dividend announcements. And I know investors will also be laser-focused on the upcoming Q2 reporting season quickly approaching. So what are your expectations for the results we might see from the banks, Brad?
1: Well, you know, I think it's going to be mixed. Uh, We we do think there'll be better, uh, substantially better credit quality, I think, uh, things like M&A and, and advisory fees will be very strong for some of the bigger banks. But I also think that there's some negatives, um, weaker trading at some of those bigger banks, uh, as well as weaker net interest income, as we were talking about, uh, relative to the, uh, the pressure from lower uh, market interest rates. But I do think that results overall will be similar to the first quarter where, uh earnings per share beats uh when they announce results uh over you know a couple of weeks from now um will be substantially driven by uh relief from their uh, credit portfolios credit losses are coming in significantly below the uh feared levels uh during the pandemic at that time they had built up significant loan loss reserves and now they're in a position to be releasing those reserves again very similar to what we saw in the first quarter that's good news because it'll drive earnings beats. but the bad news is that the market generally views those loan loss reserve releases as a lower quality source of revenue. Uh, just ticking off a couple of the key things that we're going to focus on for the quarter. I mentioned trading. Uh, we did get some guidance uh, from managements at a recent investor conference where they're looking for trading to be down as much as a third versus the first quarter level. Uh, now, that seems extreme, but first quarter was at very elevated levels, as was most of last year because of the volatility created by the pandemic. I also mentioned that net, net interest income, feeling pressure from lower market rates, It's also feeling pressure because loan growth has been somewhat weaker. Uh, people have expected as we uh, exited the pandemic that you'd see a pickup in both consumer and commercial loan growth. And that really hasn't gained uh, enough traction yet. We're seeing some some uh, hints of growth on the consumer side, but the growth in overall loans remains uh, relatively weak in the second quarter. And, you know, as I said, that does impact uh, the combination of rates and slower loan growth. It does impact net interest margins, which will probably be under pressure. Um, Finally, on non-interest income, as I said, it's mixed. Uh, Mortgage banking is also going to be a little bit weaker because higher short, excuse me, higher long-term rates have lessened uh, the demand for refinancing activity in mortgage. Um, you know, I mentioned lower trading, uh, but I think to a large extent that'll be offset by a very robust M&A environment. Mergers and acquisitions, the pipeline and executions have been very high and that is expected to continue through the balance of this year. So to your question, long-winded answer, Dan, I do think it's gonna be a mixed quarter with some pluses and some minuses. But as with every quarter, I think investors will be very focused on management's guidance for the second half of the year. Will we begin to see loan growth gain traction? can we look at that recent uptick in uh, consumer, especially credit card uh, loan uh, receivables? Can we look at that as an indication that some of this pent-up demand is finally releasing? Uh, so those are the kind of questions that investors will be having into the quarter.
0: Brad, thank you for explaining your expectations and walking us through what you'll be keeping an eye out for. A lot there to track, so perhaps that lends itself to a follow-up conversation we can have post the results release, so follow up in a few weeks' time. Now, before we close out, maybe maybe we can end on positioning. So I know currently Brad, you do maintain a moderately preferred view on the overall US financial sector. So can you remind us of your key pillars behind that thesis and maybe talk to us about how to think about positioning within the group?
1: Yes, thank you. And we you know, so we've had a moderately preferred view on since last fall and the stocks have significantly outperformed and I do think there's room for further outperformance over the next 12 months. And I, I see really four key pillars uh, to driving that outperformance, much of which we've, we've already talked about here this morning. First, I do think that higher long-term interest rates, as I said, the UBS house view is looking for 2%. I think that will help support earnings growth and profitability at the end of this year and going into 22. Second, I mentioned a better credit quality in the second quarter. Credit quality is actually better now than it was pre-pandemic. So credit losses at the industry, at the banks, are below what they were in 2019. And credit will help buoy earnings growth uh, later this year and into next year. Um, Stronger loan growth. That's going to be the key metric that we're all focused on. Uh, You know, I do think it's going to start with the consumer. I mentioned quickly the credit card data. We get monthly credit card data in the most recent data in June for, you know, looking back at May, saw there, there was an inflection in revolver credit growth. Uh, payment volumes, payment levels, excuse me, remain very high. People are paying down their credit card, but it does show in the May data that uh, card borrowers are starting to feel more comfortable revolving balances. And we think that as the uh, unemployment benefits and, and other uh, pandemic-related uh, bailout money wears down, we think that people will increasingly borrow to sustain their standard of living, uh, release pent-up demand, and that will drive long growth in the, in the later part of this year. And then the final uh, pillar of growth is higher short-term rates. I think that potentially by the end of this year, we could start to discount the potential for the Fed to raise rates as early as maybe even late 22, but in 2023, that's what the market is currently assuming. If the Fed gets back on a a, a Fed funds rate increase track, that would be good for earnings growth for the banks, as I described, uh, its impact on net interest margins and net interest income. So just pulling all of that together, uh, as I say, I do expect loan growth to be a significant focus, I think the second half is setting up well. I do think the backdrop will improve relative to the first half. And in terms of positioning, I do prefer the more consumer-oriented banks. Uh, Again, I think loan growth will show up sooner in the consumer than it does on the corporate side. Um, And I like uh, both consumer lenders and payments companies as being well positioned for that kind of rebound. I also prefer companies that are better positioned to benefit from higher long-term rates. You know, those that have a large investment security portfolio and can ramp up investments as the 10-year treasury yield uh, does rise uh, back toward the 2% level, which we forecast for the end of the year. And then finally, on the capital theme, I do prefer companies that have sizable amounts of excess capital. And now with the flexibility granted to them from the Fed, I think we will see uh, more proactive capital actions. Banks that have buyback authorizations in place will look to support their own stock by buying back stock uh, over the next, uh, you know, four quarters, and that will support, along with dividends, a total payout yields of around nine to ten percent, which I think will be a big wind at the back for the the stocks. So. Uh, With that, uh, I think we do have a case for a moderately preferred view. Uh, We maybe won't get the same level of outperformance that we've seen over the last year uh, rebounding after the pandemic. But we do think there's another leg uh, forward, and and there is moderate uh, performance over the next 12 months, Dan.
0: Brad, thank you very much for walking us through your thesis. Very productive conversation today. So thank you again for sharing your reflections on some recent key developments within the group, along with sharing your expectations for the upcoming reporting season and overall sector performance. So looking forward to following up on some of these items and continuing the conversation, though, Brad, thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it, as always you
1: Yeah, thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure.
0: And again, today we've been joined by Brad Ball, financials analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Now, as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on ubs.com forward slash cio. Now, for clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of any of the publications or blogs directly top of the morning is part of the ubs market moves podcast channel which is available where podcasts are found including on itunes spotify TuneIn, stitcher and pandora visit ubs.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new ubs trending video series from ubs studios i'm dan cassidy thank you for joining us